Psalm 1, as we'll return again this morning, Psalm 1 and verse 3. We only were able to get through the first couple of verses last time. But I mentioned in the course of that study how it was said of a man, Puritan writer from uh, England, John Bunyan, whom you know wrote uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It was said of him, and it was said of him by Charles Spurgeon, no less, prince of preachers from England, uh, from London particularly, who, by the way, lived in the same town, same era as Karl Marx, and had uh, some interaction with him, not personally, but in his literature and his writing and so forth. Anyway, uh, it's Charles Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan that, uh, I'll quote just a little bit from Spurgeon's sermon from 1882. He says, read anything of his, that is John Bunyan's, and you'll see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. This really reminds us then of Psalm 1, which gives the contrasting life and attention of the wicked and the righteous, also the, the relative prosperity or lack thereof in the course of this life on earth, but also what kind of destiny do these different people experience or expect because of their uh, actions, their, their conduct and so forth in this life. Very important to realize as part of a study in biblical manhood, what does God expect of men uh, particularly? Now, this can apply to each each person who is in Christ, of course, and each person who's out of Christ, whether, whatever our identity, our relationship is with the Lord, this is the expectation we have. This is how God deals with his creatures, his people. And we realize, of course, this opening verse says, how blessed is the man. So it's, it's specifically with reference to, to male figures. But as I mentioned last time, women ought to, ought to not tune out either and listen and gain uh, much understanding from God's word in this way. Let me read the text for us, and then we'll look at, uh, kind of review just a little bit the first two verses and move forward. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in a season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers." The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We looked at this again last time. The blessedness, the happiness, the joy that those who are contrary to what this verse says... Uh, who, who do not do these things, right? Blessed are those who do not do this. Three different times he says, not this and not this and not this. And so who is this blessed person? Well, this one who is favored by the Lord, this one who has a satisfaction in the Lord that otherwise he wouldn't have. And you think, well, wait a minute. These, these people described in three different ways, wicked and sinners and scornful, they seem like they're pretty happy. They seem like they're pretty full of themselves. Seems like they've got, kind of like we studied a few weeks ago in Psalm 73, kind of sounds like, boy, they don't have any pains in their death. They live all the, they have all this, all the stuff that they could ever desire. And, and Asaph, the psalm writer, said, I grew envious of them because of, boy, they have the good life. And what am I doing suffering for the Lord here? Well, don't. 
it, it kind of is a disconnect in our minds. Don't envy those sinners. Don't value what they value. Don't say that's life. That's not life. That is a living hell on earth. And you think, well, boy, if that's kind of like I mentioned Tevye last week. Tevye says again, if riches are a curse, may God smite me with it and may I never recover. Okay, well, that's, that's kind of a different attitude. No, we want the riches that don't just last in this, in this life, in this temporal existence. We want the riches that last into eternity. And that's what this psalm is teaching us. Because the contrast, I mean, we, we see people who are prospering in this life and they are wicked as the day is long and they are sinful. They don't even take any thought to God. They are scoffers even of God, most high blasphemers of Jesus. Take his name in vain as a curse word, as an angry epithet, and just disregard and, 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 uh, and hate our Lord whom we love. And then us, his servants, they hate us. They talk negative about it. And so, man, why, where's justice? Where's God in all these things? Well, we have to remind ourselves that's the importance of, if you don't mind, theology, doctrine, it's so foundational to our lives. If we're disconnected from that and we say, I'm going to make sense of life apart from, apart from the book, you're not going to do it. You're not going to make sense of life apart from the book, God's word. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in these ways, does not stand or sit. And uh, many things, I would love to rehearse about these things, but I recorded the sermon last week. So please go back and you can listen to it uh, from uh, these first two verses. But notice again the contrast here Blessed is the man who does not. It's three times said not. But what is his blessedness? What is his delight? What is his, is his glory? It is the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, we noticed last time that this word law, we can see in Scripture, can refer to different uh, portions of the book, whether it be the even very specifically, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, or it could be the laws that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai and then delivered to the people, or it could be the five books of, of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah that we would talk about more generally, and I think that's the, the idea here in this verse, is all the revelation, all the instruction that God has given to his people. It is God speaking to us. It's kind of like that book title from Francis Schaeffer for back in the 70s, probably, maybe the 60s, his book title, um, uh, God, he is there and he is not silent. He is there. God is, there's God, and he has spoken. He is not silent to us. He has spoken his word to us, and we want to pay attention to it. In fact, verse 2 says, not just pay attention, but delight in it. Say, this is glory. This is my life. This is what I spend my time thinking about. This is what I treat as a pleasure to read the Bible and say, well, I've got to read the Bible today because that's what my parents said. That's what people said and, and all these things. Kind of like great granddaddy said to granddaddy, oh, you're a Christian now, boy. Christians read their Bible. And so my father-in-law, Mark's father, read the scripture from the time he was eight years old. He said it took him, I think, two and a half or three years to read through the first time. King James Version Bible right here, dictionary right over here, because it's, what is this? And, he, and, and so it took him quite a while. He got faster as the years went on, but just delighted in the scripture. He delighted in the law of Yahweh and meditated on it day and night. This man who is blessed of the Lord, this man who says, hey, whether it's morning or, or noon or in the evening or whatever time, I want to think about God's word. I want to think and interpret myself rightly, which is, again, the importance of counseling and discipleship training, speaking the word to ourselves because, man, we've got problems. I've got problems. I need the word of God to bear on me so that I can then be a blessing to other people. I want to help them to get into the scripture. 
And if you don't mind, get the scripture into them, right? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the goal here. And that's what verses 1 and 2 are, give that contrast. Don't follow after the counsel of the, of the wicked and the, and the, the pathway of, of sinners and, uh, and the seat or the dwelling place of scoffers. No, you camp yourself right in the word of God. You make sure that that, is, I mean, you are more familiar with, with uh, folks like Samson and David and Ezra of the Bible and uh, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, good old Thomas, and other folks. You know them, and you know their ins and outs, and you know their, their relations, and you know where they fit chronologically in the Bible. You, can, you know them. As much as you know the current popular movie stars or the radio personalities or, the, or whatever it is, do you know the Bible? Do you know the Bible characters? Do you know the grand theme of, of Scripture? Do you know these things? And it's not a put-down. No, it's saying this is, should be our delight to recognize God's Word, which helps us not just with history. It does. Whatever it speaks about history is true and right. But what it says about the human soul, what it says about our problem and the solution to those problems, it comes from God's Word. So we want to be very careful to think about these things in relation to the voices, the different influences that we have in our lives, that everybody's speaking something, everybody's trying to help one another, and we need to make sure that we exercise very much discernment in our inputs, what we let speak into our lives. Well, he goes on in verse 3 and gives a picture, a picture of what does that person's, that blessed person's life look like. Verse 3 says, he will be like a tree firmly planted, by streams of water. So we have this glorious thing, a stability, a tree is a stable thing. And this isn't something that just kind of grew up in the wilderness. This is something that has been transplanted and planted deliberately right there next to these streams of water. Uh, a key verse in the McDonald family life is Proverbs 21.1 that talks about this, a man-made, most likely, a man-made water channel for irrigation. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is like channels of water. Here's our word streams, channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. This is God directing all these things, a a stream of water that is good for nourishment, it's good for refreshment, it's good for the the cultivation of livestock and, and plants and all these things. And God is the one who manages these things for his good pleasure. God is able to do these things. But this is a tree, not just planted out on a hilltop where, boy, I hope it survives, I hope I get a good crop out of it, well, you put it on a hilltop. How's it going to get? How's it going to get water? How's it going to be nourished? How's it going to be cared for? You better be deliberate, deliberate about where you're planting this tree. This, by the way, this is not a bush. This is a tree. Doesn't describe what it is. Could be like our Lord uh, Jesus talked about, or, or came to a fig tree, and it was a season for figs. Almost, it was coming to that season, and it had full of leaves, but. There were no figs, and so he cursed it, and you can read the rest of the story in the Gospels. But it's a tree as opposed to a bush. It's a fruit tree that gives its fruit, by the way, here in verse 3. It yields its fruit in its season. It's not a temperamental tree that, you know, you look for it. For example, we have a peach tree in our backyard that, okay, sometimes it gives peaches, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes the different birds of the air get to the peaches before we do, and that's, that's fine. But this tree, it is nourished, it's cared for, and it does give its fruit, which is... Kind of the whole idea. You don't just have trees for beauty, which, I mean, you can, but these kinds of trees are for fruit bearing. They're for um, uh, the benefit that you can receive from these trees. And it's, it's seasonal. It's, it's, you can predict it. You can rely upon it. It is just a periodic thing. It, it gives it, hey, it's seasoned for figs or, or olives or whatever it is. And here, are, here they are. Its leaf does not wither. 
Well, that's because it was planted by streams of water, not just a stream, but multiple streams coming together. Do you remember uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 talked about all the different experiments and exercises that he did trying to test himself by wisdom and all these things? And one of the things he did was to make many cultivatable, um, well, I'll just read it. Ecclesiastes 2 verses 4 and following says, I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself for myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. So this is a one. This is a king who is just so wealthy. He is so uh, just trying to, to find wisdom. Well, he had wisdom. Guy, if you just remember, the fear of the Lord has been a wisdom. That's where joy is. That's where satisfaction is. Listen to him. And he had gone off so many different ways trying to find satisfaction apart from God. But this psalmist says, no, the one who delights in God's word, who delights in the law of God, he will be like a tree bearing its fruit. His leaf does not wither in, in the springtime, well, in, in, the, in the rainy season or in the summer. It is well nourished. It's well supplied. Whatever he does, at the verse, end of verse 3 here, whatever he does, he prospers. He has good success. He is the one who is blessed by the Lord and has the benefit of a byproduct I mean, the the goal, even with Job's life, right, or any godly person's life, we don't serve God because he gives us good stuff. And whenever he gives us bad stuff, we say, well, who's this God? I'm going to go find a different God to worship because obviously he's the wrong one. I picked the wrong. Or we have to redefine who God is so that we can get the expectation that we want to satisfy our own desires. No, let God be God. Make sure that you draw near to him, not for the benefits that he gives, but for himself. Remember, that's the whole contest in Job. Satan accused God, well, Job only worships you because you give him good stuff. You put a hedge about him. Take the hedge away, and he'll curse you to your face. Well, that was a challenge to God's own glory and God's own um, worshipfulness in himself, not for his benefits, but for himself. And he said, okay, let's, let's do that. And you can read the rest of the story, as we have recently. But this man, whatever he does, he prospers. There's an example, and it actually relates to Solomon, uh, several different scriptures here. First Chronicles 22 and verse 11. David, the father, is talking to his son Solomon, and he says, Now, my son, First Chronicles 22, 11, Now, my son, Yahweh will be with you that you may be successful, and especially to build the house of Yahweh, the temple. Only Yahweh give you insight and understanding and give you command over Israel so that you may keep the law of Yahweh your God. Then you will succeed if you are careful to do the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Well, you jump forward in First Chronicles 29, verse 23. Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king instead of his father David, and he succeeded, and all Israel obeyed him. And then you move forward in Second Chronicles chapter 7, Verse 11, Solomon completed the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all that he had come, all that had come into Solomon's heart to do in the house of Yahweh and in his house, he did successfully. Because he was walking in the Lord, meditating upon God's word, walking in the fear of Yahweh. Another example is Joseph, Joseph, son of Jacob, who was in prison and had a lot of different difficulties in his life. But Genesis 39 verse 2 says Yahweh was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, this is not a guarantee, by the way. Oh, we're worshiping God, so we're going to have success in everything we do. Oh, there's a lot of calamities, a lot of 
difficulties that we face in life, a lot of disappointments that we'll face in life. It's not because God is somehow uh, lying. He deceived us and we were deceived. No, he's, he's doing all. He gives both the good and the evil, the blessings and the adversities, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be glad, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made both of them so that we may not figure out what comes after us. God is in control. He gives the good and the bad. He gives the blind and the seeing eye. He gives the hearing and the deaf ear. And we think, well, why does God do that? Why is he so mean? He's not mean. He's teaching us to rely upon him and to realize that he is worth it and that this life is very short, just very short. But we live, we're made for eternity. Let's fashion our souls for eternity rather than strive and, and kick and fight for, for what we have in this life, the stuff that we can get and the people and the fame and all this stuff, which kind of we sang about, I think. Wasn't our opening song something like, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world uh, offers or has to, to share? We want Jesus. We want an eternal life. We want to be fitted for his glory because we realize not just in this life, can we have this expectation to whatever degree? And God doesn't do the same thing with all people in the, in the, in the sense of, okay, well, that person over there is a Christian and God has blessed them with work and the family and, and money and, and a lot of people looked up to him and the reputation. Wait a minute, that's kind of like Job. Okay, yes, but then he took it from him. What was that about? Well, to show that Job delighted in Yahweh, not the stuff, not the family, not the fame. He was concerned about that to some degree, Job was. But what about the relationship I have with God? I thought we were good. I thought we had a, a, a blessed relationship, and now it's been taken from me. The expectation we have is not that things will just go peachy keen, it'll be fine and dandy, no more hardships in our life now that we're in Christ. No, it's kind of like the battle is just beginning, and the battle is ourselves first, dealing with our own wicked selves that need to be uh, fully redeemed, right? We read Romans 7 about this, the challenge that we have uh, conquering our own flesh. Who will, you know, uh, 7, uh, end of chapter 7, it says, wretched man that I am, who will, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It's the Lord who can deliver us in that regard. Anyway, having this, this statement, whatever he does, he prospers. It's not a, well, boy, I can take that to the bank, right? I'm going to see my bank account just increase exponentially and my, my expenses will always be less, like significantly less than my, my income, my revenue, and it'll be fine. I'll be able to be a blessing to people. Not, not always. Not always. Just let God be God. Be thankful for when he gives and when he takes and recognize God is my sufficiency. He will provide. He is a good and gracious God. But God's word is what enables us to think through these things. Because our minds would quickly get under the sun kind of thinking, and where's God, and, and how is God just, and, and good grief, I'm wasting my time here trying to please God. Why am I reading the scripture? I need to go out and get a job. I need to go work, because obviously God's not going to take care of me. Wait a minute. That is, in the words of some famous theologian, I can't remember, stinking thinking. Don't you be thinking that way. You make sure that you take every thought captive to the word of God. God is good. God is sufficient. God is so attentive, so kind to you. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I just conflated a couple of verses, but I'll let you deal with that. So whatever he does, he prospers. It's not a, a guarantee. It's kind of like uh, train up your children in the, fear, in the, in the way of the Lord and when, he, when he's old and not depart from it. Wait a minute. Don't we know a lot of children who have turned away from the Lord, who were trained in a Christian home and all the, it's not. It's an axiom. It's a generic, general principle. This is how it goes. 
And the contrast, he says, from verse 3, which is a tree, firmly planted, wonderful. Verse 4, what's it like for the wicked? Well, they have all this good stuff going for them, right? The riches and the fame and the, the happiness, and it looks like they're just happy, happy people. But verse 4 says, not so. It's not this way. They're not like a tree. In fact, they're not even like a bush. In fact, they're not even like some kind of a plant that kind of grows up. They are like the, the chaff, the, the kind of extraneous material that's good for nothing. It is worthless. It is weightless. It is insignificant. It is removed. It is something you, you, you don't want that in your life. And you thought, well, but they're looking like they're so good. No, uh, just because they look healthy and whole right now, they're cut off from the vine. It's the example of people trying to uh, illustrate the fact of our spiritual deadness, especially the death that happened in the garden, Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, when God said in chapter 2, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then you read, how long did Adam live after that? Like 900 some years? That's In the day you eat of it, you'll die. As much emphasis as we have on the, the days of, of Genesis, well, that's a pretty long day, isn't it? No, the point was, they were cut off. They were depraved. They were uh, as kind of like a cut flower as opposed to a living plant, right, that is nourished and, and wonderful. A cut flower, it's going to die. It's just, it doesn't show it yet, but it will. Give it a little time, and it will demonstrate its, its cut-offedness, if you don't mind. But here he says, not so. This is not how the wicked are. They're not like the tree planted, cultivated, taken care of, fruitful, abundant, prospering. No, the wicked are like chaff, which the wind drives away. We are a little bit removed from agricultural things. We can envision a tree, perhaps, and, and have that idea. But when we talk about chaff, which is talked about a lot in Scripture, even our Lord uh, talks about it. Uh, well, John the Baptist specifically, we'll look at an example. Chaff is the stuff that is not the, the straw, right? The stalk of a, whether a barley plant or a wheat plant or something like that. Uh, the, the straw is the, is the, the, uh, the stem of the of the. Uh, wheat or, or barley, whatever it is. Chaff is something that is wrapped around the wheat berry, the kernel of, of whatever you want for your, for your grain. The, the chaff is the, it's the husk around the thing. It's the kind of uh, just dust and whatever. It's very light, and you need to separate that. You cut off the, the, the stalk or the straw from that, separate that, take that away here. But then what are you going to do with this chaff? The chaff is what the psalmist describes the wicked, not so the wicked. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Well, how does that happen? When you harvest your, your wheat, your grain, whatever it is, you bring it to the threshing floor, you s spread it all on this, this flat surface, and then you run a threshing sledge over the top of it. Put rocks on the bottom of this wood sled, and then you have a, a beast, a burden, usually to carry that and and it just agitates it doesn't break you don't want to crush the grain right that'd be that's not good but you separate the wheat from the chaff and well but then you, it's still all right there in that mess okay but you have to thresh it first you have to separate it there then what you do is take a fork and toss that mess up into the air the wheat barrier barley whatever it is falls back to the ground because it has substance has mass whereas the chaff just kind of floats away like the scripture here says like the, like the chaff which the wind drives away. Not just whew, like that kind of thing, but driving. In fact, you want to have a threshing floor kind of up elevated so that you would catch the winds. You remember when Gideon was threshing his, um, his grain, I think it was barley, in the wine press, which is kind of like doing it in the basement? Uh, why would you do that? 
Well, because he was afraid of the Midianites. We're going to come and take away his stuff. So he's doing it kind of clandestinely. Didn't want those Midianites to come. No, you'd want your threshing floor kind of like, hmm. Do you remember? We need to have a map of Jerusalem here to show that. But do you remember how in 2 Samuel 24, Samuel, David rather took a census of the people and all that drama went on. And God says, go up to the threshing floor. Go up, right, to the threshing floor of Aravno or Arana, how you want to pronounce it. And you're going to sacrifice an offering to me on the top of that mountain. Well, that's where threshing floors belong. Then. So that gets the, the wind that you can then toss up the stuff and the wind carries away this chaff. Whoa, chaff, again, is something that is lifeless. There's no benefit to this stuff. It is useless. It is worthless. As John the Baptist said, this is Matthew 3 and verse 12, talking about Christ, his winnowing fork, which as you see the picture here, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat, the berries, the good stuff, into the barn, but will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. There is an expectation. What is God doing in judgment to his people? Does he know what's going on with these wicked people, these sinners, these scoffers? Yes, he does. And he says, it may not look like it right now, but not so, not like these righteous people, not like these scripture-imbued and imbibed people. Not so are the wicked. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. So many times in scripture we see that example of whether smoke, which also is, is lightweight, there's nothing to it. It's, it's, well, there's particles in it, but it's nothing that we want to have in our, in our lives and so forth. But as the smoke is driven away, this is Psalm 68 verse 2, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. So there's that example of being driven away, not just in a, in a gentle way, but like a torrential wind that just gets things out of, the, out of the place. God is the one who brings that judgment to pass upon the wicked. Not always in our timetable, because we would say, boy, when is God going to bring this judgment upon them? Isn't it about time? And so the righteous should be exalted and the wicked be subdued and, and uh, in God's time. That will happen. But in the meantime, God is saving people. He's delivering people from their wickedness. I, I think a wonderful example, Nebuchadnezzar, wicked guy. Babylonians were pretty nasty in their whole things, which is why uh, Habakkuk got all uptight about, you're going to bring the Chaldeans? They're not good people. We're good people. And then God says, you're not good people. And neither are the Chaldeans. But I'm going to use them to bring chastening, discipline, punishment upon my, my people so that they'd repent of their sin and return to me. So God is able to use all these different things. But Nebuchadnezzar was delivered by God and delivered from his own pride, his arrogance, his violence, his wickedness, because he responded. He humbled himself before God and received that instruction from God's law, from God's revelation. Tremendous, wonderful example. He goes on, the psalmist does in verse 5, and he says, lest you be confused, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Again, the end of the wicked, we may not discern it, but like Asaph, Psalm 73, I came into the, the sanctuaries of God and then I understood their end. Boy, you have set them in slippery places and they're going to fall down to de destruction. Here in verse 5, they will not rise in the judgment. They will not have any confidence to have an acceptance before God. They're not those who can say, well, God, I've done a lot of good in my life. Didn't really do it for your sake, but for my sake. But, you know, I think that qualifies, doesn't it? It was good. Helped other people. Philanthropy and, and that kind of stuff. Helping my fellow man and so forth. Does that earn a pardon before God? No. No. 
Nobody enters heaven based on their own good works. You do enter heaven by good works, just not your own. Never. And not the good works of other people, only the good work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place and suffered a a sinner's death and then was raised up the third day to prove that God accepted his sacrifice for us. But the wicked have no expectation of standing or rising, you know, standing up in, in that judgment time when God does come to separate, using a different analogy, the wheat from the tares or the sheep from the goats or the righteous from the wicked. There's that time coming. The wicked, they have no hope, no expectation. One example you can consider, Genesis 40. Remember when Joseph is there in prison and the interesting, interesting drama that goes on there with the wine, uh, the cupbearer and the baker and all the different things that are going on. And they, the two guys both have dreams. And it says in, in Genesis 40, let's see what's particularly. He says uh, to the wine or to the cupbearer, he says, within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. So in that time of judgment, he's able to rise up, right? To rise up and to stand in his in his office, you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand and according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Not so for the baker, right? You, you, you feel for the baker because he's, oh, Joseph gave a good interpretation for this guy. Maybe he'll do the same for me. No, in three days, Pharaoh, uh, Joseph said to the baker, uh, in three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you. Wait a minute, he said to the cupbearer, Pharaoh will lift up your head but not off of you. There's a separation going on there, a decapitation. And he will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. There is a pretty bold picture. What does it mean to stand in the judgment or, or rise in judgment? And what does it mean not able to rise? Well, it's right there. And even at the end of Psalm 2, which Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of the introductory psalms to the whole of the Psalter, And the last verse of Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the goal. We we run to the son. We kiss the son. We honor him. We love him because of what he's done for us, because of who he is, because of his, his word, his works, his character, all these things. We take refuge in him. The wicked take no thought of Christ. They think, no, either there is no God or I'll be fine or... Uh, who is God that I should worship him? Or, ah, hell's not that bad after all. Or, I don't think there's a hell. I think when you die, you die. You're done. The expectation of eternal judgment ought to be on our minds, not in a fearful sense, but in a sobering sense, right? The grace of God has appeared teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness what to live soberly, righteously in the present age, looking for blessed hope that we have, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Him. That's what we look forward to, that judgment that He's bringing, the rewards for those who are in Him, but the judgment also. It says, sinners will not stand or rise up in the congregation of the righteous, in the assembly of God's people. They will not have any expectation that they will have uh, an association with God or His people because they didn't live that way in their lives. No, no regard for God or his word or his people. No regard for anything like that. They will not rise up in the congregation of the righteous. When you can turn to Revelation 20 if you wanted to, the great white throne judgment, they were judged, each of them, every one of them according to their deeds. And they were thrown into the lake of fire because of their wickedness. Sinners will not be part of that congregation of the righteous. Why is this so? Verse 6, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Yahweh knows, both objectively, he knows what's going on, but he also knows in a, in a loving, caring, intimate sense. He draws near to us. He has a, a special relationship with his people, the way of the righteous, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting God's word, taking delight, finding delight in God's word. And God is the one who then protects them, guards them, teaches them, disciplines them, chastens them, corrects them, and makes them conform to the image of his son. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. Do you remember in Numbers? Okay, Numbers chapter 16, verse 5, the conflict that the Korahites had with Moses, and the Korahites wanted the, a, a universality, a democracy of, of the priesthood and, and being able to, to worship God in their own way. Well, Moses said, number 16, verse 5, Moses said to Korah and all this congregation, Tomorrow morning Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. This is a statement God knows whose are his. In fact, 2 Timothy 2 says that God knows who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. Quoting this passage, number 16, verse 5, the Lord knows who are his. He will show who is his. God knows, and that ought to comfort us, and also ought to frighten the living daylights out of it. God knows what I'm doing, what I'm thinking in my heart. Yes, he does, and he wants to purify you. He wants to gently, if you'll receive it, and if not gently, he will boldly, and uh, it will take your breath away kind of thing, when he wants to expose your sin. Why are you clinging to that sin? Why are you clinging to that wickedness, that scoffingness? Turn away from it. Find your life in me, he says. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. We don't want a false expectation, a false assurance of salvation that says, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? Do you know that God knows? And when when that last day comes, Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we have this relationship. No, not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say, Lord, we did a lot of good things in your name. And he will say, I never knew you. Well, wait a minute, you knew the way of the righteous? I'm telling you, you're not a righteous guy. You had the looks of it, you had the appearance of it. I never knew you. And he says, I'll give you a second chance, right? Maybe, okay, the deadline was here, but I'll give you another couple of days to finish the paper. Or what? No, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Get away from me. Can you imagine what that would be like to hear that? Coming, thinking things are just fine with God. Kind of like Agag coming before Samuel. Ah, oh, the war is passed, it's going to be fine. And what does Samuel do? Takes that sword out and hacks Agag to little bits. He was undone, but he had expectation. Now it's going to be fine. Don't think that way. If we see this wonderful, and not just in a, in a kind of lukewarm, but wonderful contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the, the, the attention that the righteous give to the word of God, the neglect, the despair, the, or, or disregard, the scoffing that the wicked have toward the word of God, to the, to the blessed life of, in this blessed experience in this life of the righteous versus the, the chaffiness of the wicked, and then the eternal destiny of the righteous. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish Ought that not to drive us toward righteousness? Ought that not to get us sobered up here to think rightly about our lives, to think rightly about where we spend our time and how we, how we orient our lives? You know, the center of our lives ought to be God. 
not just this other stuff that, that we, you know, the food and the clothing and the shelter. That's what the Gentiles long after and the fame and the wealth and all. Forget about that. If God gives it to you, wonderful. Use it for God's kingdom. If you're wealthy, use that for God's glory. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to be uh, healthy and, and, and all, all this famous stuff. But when it becomes an idol that you demand, I must have this for my life to be happy and joyful. No. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am your God. I'm your redeemer. I'm your savior. I'm your friend. I'm your sufficiency. I have spoken to you. What are you doing with my word? Will you listen to it? The way of the wicked will perish. And we think, well, that's, again, that's so Old Testament. I wish that, you know, this this perishing business is no part of the New Testament, right? God of grace, God of glory. John 3.16, I don't know, is that in the New Testament? Right? Whoever believes in him would not perish. Oh, so that's still uh, something that's at stake in this new New Testament age? Yes. Those who believe in the Son will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a danger for us even now that we want to be careful lest our own sin come back on our own heads. Uh, 1 Kings 8, verse 32. Condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous. No, we want to make sure that God is rewarding us not for our wickedness, but for our devotion to him. So, as we conclude this thing, again, focusing on the men, what kind of man are you? Are you one of those righteous people who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night? Are you, do you see that example in your life? Do you see fruitfulness in your life? Do you see the benefit that you are giving to other people? I mean, have you ever seen a, a fruit tree eating its own fruit? No. In other words, you don't have these gifts for yourself. Think of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 14. These gifts are to serve other people. How are you being a benefit to other people? What are you doing to serve other people? And it doesn't mean, well, I have this, this office or this position in the church or whatever, and I'm the, the deacon of so-and-so. No. What can you do without any office or title or, or official capacity? How can you serve and meet needs? Use the gifts, the skills, the abilities God has given to you to be a blessing to other people. How can you show your fruitfulness to other people? What about the daily devotion, the daily discipline you have in your, in your uh, uh, diet of Scripture? Where's, where's Scripture in your experience, in your life? Realize that God knows. God knows. And he wants himself to be center of our lives. He wants us to draw near to him and to his word and to his people. Those are the, really the three major things, drawing near to God, his word, his people. That is what shows us What's really important to us in our lives? How can we show forth the value that God has in our lives? We recognize that, wow, the standard is pretty high. I wish that it were a little bit lower. No, you don't. Would, would you really want to worship a God who has pretty low standards, who's really not interested in holiness or righteousness or truth or justice? Mm, I just wish that we had somebody like uh, any number of personal characters you could read throughout history. No. As good as David was, oh, he was not like Jesus. As good as Solomon was, wisest and wonderfulest king of, of Israel. No, nah, nothing like Dave, nothing like, well, nothing like his father, nothing like Jesus. We want Jesus. We realize he is our sufficiency. He's our joy. He's our delight. To receive God's word, to meditate upon it means we have humility, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Humility to recognize, I didn't do this by myself. God is the one. There's a God in heaven, and he has given these things to me, and he gives them to other people just as well as to me, and God knows, and we can rest in his knowledge. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, To this one I will look. I'm going to pay attention to this person, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 
How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Psalm 32 says. Uh, Psalm 94, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yah, and whom you teach out of your law. There is that idea of teaching, but then, well, I know what I ought to do, but I'm not going to do it. Or maybe I'll do it later, you know, come into Christ. I, yeah, I know I need to do that later. I'll do it before I die anyway. Really? You know when you're going to die? Yeah, it'll be years from now, decades at least. You have no guarantee of that. You don't know. Your life is so fragile that you could die of a heart attack, of uh, any kind of situation. So what should we do? So, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. We must say that our creed, our character, who we are, what we believe, what we are in our lives, and how we conduct ourselves, creed, character, conduct, is in line with God's word. That not just thinking about God's word, but meditating on it, dwelling on it, delighting in it, realizing that we, as we trust in God's word, then we also ought to obey God's word and do what he says. Now, again, this ought to give hope, realizing, man, I want to be a righteous person, I fall short. Well, there's hope for that, right? There's hope. You, you fall short. You've, you've taken an inventory of your life. What's the answer? Repent, confess, return to God. Return to him. He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 555 verse 7 again. But again, last verse. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. Ha! Can you believe it? I just said last verse. I did two. So I'm sorry, okay? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is the blessedness we look for. Because of God's wonderful word, we can draw near in faith to him. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the life that we have in Christ. We're grateful for the forgiveness of our sins, even knowing that, boy, in ourselves, we are not righteous. We are wicked. And yet you are the one who saves and delivers and changes us for your glory. We are grateful for life that we have in Christ, and we pray that we would bear fruit for your sake. We pray that we would forsake sin in our lives, that we would say, that's nothing that I ought to have in my life. I want to value your principles, yourself, your truth that gives life and not the death that this world offers as, as, a, as a false life, a false picture. We pray that we would be clear-minded, sober-minded in this really deceptive age and the, the sin which is so deceitful please help us to value what you value to, to pursue the things that you pursue and to share life with your people help us to challenge one another toward love and good deeds not in a vindictive way not in a, a heavy-handed or um, a proud arrogant way but in a gentle loving speaking god's word from the heart wanting pleading with one another be reconciled to god please help us to be humble uh, ourselves humble tools in your and your um, good work. Thank you for each one who's here. Please save and sanctify. Help us to grow in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.